Hello, you are listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is. We are continuing our season two series, The Wild West of Computing, with a look at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. We're going to look at an interview with former DARPA director, Clint Kelly. You may remember from episode two, DARPA started out as the Advanced Research Projects Agency, AKA ARPA. This government organization emerged from Cold War tensions in 1958. President Eisenhower did not want the US to be bested by the Soviet Union, like it was with Sputnik 1, which entered into low Earth orbit in 1957 ahead of America's spacecraft. So the Department of Defense launched ARPA. ARPA initially oversaw America's space program. It shifted to high-risk military technology after NASA was established. ARPA wasn't so concerned with the final product, but focused instead on moving technologies from the lab to the proof-of-concept phase. They focused on work that wasn't naturally happening in the private sector. High risk, high reward. ARPA, later DARPA, exists along with numerous other federal funding agencies to supply money to research universities, to advance basic science and experimental knowledge so that America can beat the Soviet Union. That is historian Andrew Mead McGee, visiting professor at CMU, who joins us again for this episode. Most people will be familiar with the concept of the space race, the idea that Moscow and Washington are in a competition to see who can garner greater glory by shooting people up into space into rockets and eventually putting a man on the moon. There is a comparable scientific race. It's about developing new and more potent weapons. So transitioning from the atom bomb to the hydrogen bomb to the cobalt bomb. But it's also about an expression of national pride and national superiority through advancement of science. The Soviets take their science very seriously. They build entire secret cities full of scientific researchers. They laud the accomplishments of their physicists, their mathematicians, their chemists. The same way that in the 1960s and the 1970s, these two nations will compete in the Olympics and in international chess matches for glory, they will compete for Nobel Prizes. ARPA was a strong source of funding for CMU's nascent computer science program. In 1962, Carnegie Tech received $300,000. Then in the early 1970s, the Department of Computer Science received a multi-year $1.8 million grant plus additional project grants from DARPA in the 1980s. Washington isn't just doling out this money out of generous spirit. CMU is the beneficiary of a remarkable transformation of American higher education that occurs beginning in the mid-1950s and accelerates in the 1960s and 1970s as a reflection of Cold War tensions. So computers are part of that conflict in the sense that 
computers are seen as a doorway to understanding the complexities of nature and solving otherwise intractable problems. The computer in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, whether you refer to it as a tool of cybernetics or electronic data processing or information systems, is about using technology to understand what humans can't otherwise comprehend because the problem is so vast or so complex or would take too long to calculate. In 1972, ARPA was renamed Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. If you hear DARPA's name in the news today, it may be in reference to plant-eating surveillance robots, or self-repairing houses, or cyborg insects. Since it was founded, ARPA has supported radical new technological developments. It's probably best known for the ARPANET, the precursor to the internet, which launched in 1969. Computers also become the backbone for transmitting information. They will become the basis for wired and eventual wireless networks and satellite networks. And CMU, Carnegie Tech, later Carnegie Mellon, as part of its affiliation with the ARPA-DARPA funding regime will become one of the initial nodes on these interconnected networks that we know as ARPANET that will later become the backbone for the internet. ARPANET develops for very particular geopolitical strategic reasons. It's designed to test what a distributed network would look like that could survive in case of a total nuclear war. You want your command and control infrastructure to exist if your major hubs of commerce and government are obliterated in nuclear bombs. The idea of information that can be sent in packets across a multi-node system makes that possible. But beyond serving as proof of concept for this rather grim preparation for the end of the world, what it does is link communities of researchers across institutions and allows them to share data, to share documents, to communicate with one another, and to ultimately recognize the potential of an electronically mediated computer-based communications network. This builds on a decades, if not centuries long dream of being able to nearly instantaneously transmit information and communicate. It's the next natural extension of the telephone, the telegraph, the visions of 19th century figures like Charles Babbage for how networks of computers might be linked to solve problems too large for a single machine. DARPA funding has also had a hand in developing GPS, stealth planes, GUIs, or graphical user interfaces, and Siri. Often, DARPA funds an initial project that eventually spins out into a technology that becomes commonly known 
and used. Although sometimes projects are deemed unrealistic or unsuitable for the times, and are abandoned, like a proposal for a nuclear-propelled spaceship. DARPA has been called amoeba-like in that it can adapt to shifting political environments, new directors, and the quick pace of technological change. Our episode today focuses on an oral history interview with Clint Kelly, a former director at DARPA and a frequent collaborator to a number of faculty members at CMU. Clint worked at DARPA from 1980 to 1988, leaving with the title director of the U.S. Strategic Computing Program. I'd been there about eight years. Normally, a stay at DARPA was three to four years. Left with a lot of regrets and a feeling which exists to this day is the best jobs, set of jobs I ever had. Well, you had extraordinary freedom of operation. What DARPA trafficked in was innovative ideas. And the expectation was that at least half of them would fail. You were supposed to take risks. So you had to be able to make a case when you asked for money that your idea had had a chance of working. You couldn't come in with something that violated the laws of physics and expect to get paid to pursue it. Uh, but you could do things that, that were risky, where a commercial company might say, ah, too risky. In our fascinating oral history interview with Clint Kelly, he provided another reason why he liked working at DARPA. You interacted in DARPA itself, in the program managers, with people that were tops of their field. I mean, we, we had best of breed folks in materials, in aeronautics, computer science, tactical weapons systems, and a whole bunch of things that I found really neat, but I can't talk about. You know, if you if you were having kind of a dull day, you just go knock on somebody's office. I actually didn't generally knock. The doors were usually open back in those days. Just wander in and have a cup of coffee with somebody and chat about the cool stuff they were doing. Austin Kibler, who ran what was then called the Human Resources Research Office, Air Force Colonel, and gave me my first contract as a DARPA contractor back when we were starting our company. We got to know each other quite well over the years, saw a lot of him after he retired. He said that I never saw a technology I didn't like, and that's probably close to the truth. There was something really cool about even nuclear weapons. You know, the physics of the first few microseconds I found intriguing, and you could go to places and people could talk about that and talk about how they produced instrumentation that would collect data even though the instrumentation would be eliminated in a few microseconds. Before his time at DARPA, Clint co-founded a company called Decisions and Designs Incorporated in 1972. A couple of us decided we'd start a company. And so we did, based on doing decision analytic work for the intelligence and the policymaking community. So we worked with the Council on Economic Advisors. We worked with the National Security Council, a lot of work with DIA and, and with some of the other three-letter agencies. We actually worked on the law of the sea treaty with the Coast Guard group, a whole bunch of projects, some of which I remember, some of which I don't. And of those that I remember, I'm probably not going to say anything more about them. After DARPA, Clint spent a number of decades at the Science Applications International Corporation, where he worked on some very wild projects. Well, we had we did some autonomous vehicle work. 
uh, we did some work where we tried to create sensor systems out of hippocampal neurons extracted from rats and grown in vitro on a glass plate. Uh, we did a lot of stealth work where the trick was to uh, figure out how to make an aircraft as invisible as you could. That program started at DARPA, was one of the so-called black programs at DARPA. It was uh, later transferred out of DARPA after the technology had been demonstrated. But people kept coming up with new materials and new geometries. And the question was, are they aerodynamically sound and what do they look like on radar? We developed an EM pulse simulator. One of the effects of a nuclear weapon is an electromagnetic pulse. And the question is, uh, how can I harden equipment? So if somebody tries to take out my command and control systems, that they resist it. So we developed a, a way to generate a pulse without sending off something that went bang. And then somebody came up with a neat idea it, through iterative design could actually be designed to fit into a vehicle pretty easily. So if a policeman was in hot pursuit, he could just press a button and it would disable the ignition system of the car ahead. Trouble was, as the lawyers pointed out, it wasn't all that directional. And you might shut down a pacemaker or somebody that just happened to be walking along the sidewalk. So that turned out not to be an idea that went anywhere. But let's return to his time at DARPA, where Clint worked with CMU and many other universities on an early self-driving vehicle project called the Autonomous Land Vehicle, ALV. ALV was developed in the mid-1980s in the mountains of Colorado near Denver. It was an enormous military vehicle. It had eight wheels and it stood about 12 feet tall. ALV is a great example of how DARPA encouraged collaboration between organizations across the country. This is a collaboration between government, military, universities, and industry. If you remember back to episode two, ARPA was focused on giving money to people doing interesting things. Now in the 1980s, we see a more deliberate focus on military applications. So let's focus on the autonomous land vehicle example for this episode. So then we get to the autonomous land vehicle. The, the problem was that we didn't have a concrete requirement from the Army. So I knew that about 80% of Army traffic, be it logistics or combat vehicles, took place on roads. Some of them might not be great roads, but they weren't steaming off cross-country. So it seemed reasonable to focus initially on on-road navigation. And we chose speeds two or three years into the program that seemed to be consistent with average speeds that these vehicles would employ. And I think it was like 40 kilometers an hour. I've kind of forgotten. But uh, we couldn't get there initially, so we started out much more slowly. I mean, keep in mind that at that point, uh, the best that had been achieved by vehicles that had some degree of autonomy uh, were really represented by uh, the Stanford cart of Hans Moravec way back when, which, you know, kind of went meters per hour. That was really pushing the state of the art back then. It was connected to the computers, which couldn't begin to fit on it by an umbilical. So you had a room full of computers that 
did the image processing for the cart. People, by the way, had driven faster than that, but only with roads that had been specially prepared. So the Germans uh, exhibited some navigation at higher speeds, uh, much higher speeds, but they had sensors buried into the roadbed that made it a lot easier. One of the first steps for the autonomous land vehicle was to integrate all the technological components. So the first thing you do is try and find some contractor to do the integration of these different tech-based components into a, into a system. So we went out with a request for proposals. I think we got seven proposals back, but the best one was from Martin Marietta. It wasn't Lockheed Martin yet. Uh, the merger hadn't taken place. I think that took place in something like 95. So it was still Martin Marietta. They had a big operation in Denver where they built the Titan 3C, where they built some of the Mars landers. Uh, so they'd done a lot of integration. They also, of course, had a lot of defense experience. So they knew what mill spec meant and how to go about testing for it if you ever got to that stage. So we felt that if we had something that was useful, they would know how to package it in a form uh, that would be useful to, uh, to the Army, for example. The other thing that was nice, uh, they offered up a test site in, uh, just outside of Denver, which was on property they owned, so there wouldn't be any difficulty in you know, obtaining access to it. We could have access to it anytime we wanted. And they offered to provide the test vehicle. And since we were going to be doing mostly on-road, but wanted to go off-road, they ended up with an eight-wheeled vehicle, which in the course of time eventually ended up at Carnegie Mellon for a DARPA program where they said, if you can't detect obstacles, maybe you can build a vehicle that'll just go over. The contract was awarded in 1984, I think. The first demonstration was um, scheduled to be, I believe, in May or June of 85. They didn't have a whole lot of time. Uh, the vehicle, you've probably seen pictures of it, was ungainly looking. Uh, and I remember at the first demonstration, some army colonel came up to me and he said, boy, that's never going to make it on the battlefield. You can see it a mile away. And I tried to explain this was a research vehicle. It was big because of all the computers we had to put in it. And these could at some point in time with improvements in the technology be packaged into an operational vehicle, but he, he just didn't get it. It was strangest conversation. In any event, it took the form that it took because we had to put a lot of stuff in it that wasn't small back in those days. You had to have a generator to run it. And then you had to have an air conditioning to keep everything cool, including the, uh, the humans who were inside. So it looked pretty ungainly, but it would move where you needed it to move as quickly as you needed it to go. It, it was uh, actually impressive to watch, particularly going cross country. So it is 1985, and the first demonstration for the autonomous land vehicle occurs. Let's see, uh, we had our first demo in, uh, in 85, as I mentioned. Uh, the vehicle went about a kilometer in about a thousand seconds. So there are a thousand meters to a kilometer. So thousand seconds, it went a meter a second or on the order of uh, 3.6 kilometers an hour. 
That's 2.2 miles per hour. Let's compare that to other autonomous vehicle projects going on at CMU in the 1980s. Between 1982 and 1984, Terrigator, or Terrestrial Navigator, was developed. It traveled centimeters per second. In 1986, the first navigation laboratory vehicle, or NavLab, traveled about 20 miles per hour. These are slow by today's standards, but back then, it was cutting edge. We will hear more about these vehicles in the next episode. So during that first demo, I and several others, I think Chuck was with me, we walked behind the vehicle. Clint is referring to Chuck Thorpe. Chuck is former faculty at CMU and was a leader of the NavLab group. I I guess we, I don't know, we're proud of it. And one person said, you guys were back there giving steering directions, weren't you? And I said, you know, I turned my pockets inside out. I said, you don't see a radio, do you? Somebody else said, why don't you walk in front of it? And I said, we haven't gotten to that demo yet where it has to avoid obstacles. <laughs> uh, so we had that demo, 86 uh, was more of the same, just faster. Uh, and they made, uh, they made those milestones. By the summer of 86, uh, the vehicle had been running for 18 months and had logged over 100,000 miles. Can you believe that? And we wore the engine out. So we had to replace the engine, but it was used a lot. I mean, people would come in with new hardware, you know, put it on the vehicle and see if it works. New software, same thing, new sensors. And the only way to see if it worked was to put it on the vehicle. Throughout different iterations of the project, they faced challenges they didn't expect. It turns out, it was difficult to get the project team on site in Colorado. From our standpoint, the best technology transfer is mind-to-mind transfer. So rather than hand somebody a disc back in those days with code on it, it's better to be there in person to hand it to them and sit down at a terminal with them and work through it. The difficulty is you got people who are married, you know, so do they leave their wife for two or three months for the summer? Uh, others were married, maybe didn't have children. Wife was happy to go to the cooler environment of the Colorado mountains. I look at the problems Chuck had in setting up the uh, university in Gutter. Initially, uh, he and um, Jerry Cohen went around and talked to people, you know, would you like to go spend a year there or whatever the time period was. They got a bunch of yeses and Chuck said, then it came down, we got the job. And he went back and said, okay, you know, pack your bag. And a lot of people that had said yes said no. So, it, you know, it's just, it's disruptive. Uh, nowadays, you'd probably try and fly people out for a week just so they get to know people and you'd do the rest by Zoom or something else. But back in those days, the, uh, the only alternative we had was just to physically move people. Now later, uh, we made use of the ARPANET we had common operating environments a number of places, so we could take almost, I say we, Martin Marietta, could take almost any software that somebody had developed and port it. It could come to them over the net, uh, but it took about two years to get there. In addition to the problem of getting people to work in the same location, there were also technical challenges. So toward the end of 87, when after the big demo of obstacle avoidance, I thought things were working pretty well. 
it became pretty clear just getting into the program maybe after six months that different places needed vehicles. We thought road following would be easy to start with. I shouldn't say easy. We thought it would be easier than other things we could think of doing like cross country. It turned out to be really hard. Uh, You'd have software on our vehicle later on the Carnegie Mellon nav lab that would work fine at noon at three o'clock in the afternoon, it wouldn't work because you had shadows and the vehicles couldn't differentiate between a shadow on the ground and the edge of the road. And Red, of course, tells that story about the interrogator even before the nab lab that tried to climb a tree. If I could interject for just a second, Clint is referring to Red Whitaker, who is known for a number of autonomous vehicles like interrogator and nav lab. Yeah, you have a tree trunk, two straight lines, and why not, you know, give it a go. So we had all kinds of problems. For example, at the Martin test site, which was which was an asphalt road, but it was sort of a tertiary road, had no stripes or anything, and you know, it just faded off into the, uh, into the terrain. Somebody would drive a vehicle across the desert after a rainstorm, and they'd put down a muddy track on the road, and you know, the road was clear before it got to the track. It was clear after the track, but the vehicle would see the track and think that was maybe the edge of the road. And it would turn off to one side or the other. You'd have a rain shower, last for a few minutes. The road was wet. You got glint off the aggregate in the road. That confused. I mean, just stuff you never would have thought of. So you needed to be in a vehicle on a road to really develop your software and test it. One way to progress more quickly was for every team to build their own vehicle and share the findings and technology. So Chuck came up with a plan. CMU would build a vehicle for themselves and I think two or three other people in the Image Understanding Program. Ron Olander and I agreed that was a great idea. We had money for one vehicle, so that went to CMU. But the problem in giving a vehicle to other people was that they didn't have anything other than what they developed to run on it. So if you say we want you to improve road following software, there's a lot of supporting software that you need that's also part of the development process. Whose do you put on their vehicle? And then a better version of that comes on and you now not only got to put it on the major test vehicle, but everybody has to install it on their vehicles so that you're testing with a common base. We couldn't figure out how to solve that. Carnegie Mellon turned out to be unique because it had at least one of everything. So you had path planning people and you had hardware people, you know, out of Red's operation and you had vision people and you had computer people. I mean, you had everything. We ended up with with Carnegie Mellon kind of providing more and more of the software because they had everything under one roof. So the best way to transfer technology, I still say, is mind to mind. And back in those days, the only way we could get the mind to meld was to um, physically move people. To to finish up on the ALV, I, I left ARPA, as I said, in January of 88. Jack Schwartz came in from Columbia to run 
computer science portfolio saw Amaral return to Rutgers, and Jack wanted to review everything, particularly the autonomous land vehicle, so he set up a review committee, asked me to be on it, and I said, well, you know, I'm biased, and he said, well, I got plenty of people who won't share your bias, so, but, you know, please, please participate. So we all met out in Denver, uh, actually at Martin Marietta's site, one of the members of the group I knew slightly, his name was Bo Evans, actually retired from IBM. He was recipient of the National Medal of Technology, so a pretty high-powered guy. He turned to me, he said, do you believe in all this stuff? He said, if you do, you must believe in the tooth fairy. And I said, well, let me tell you that they met every milestone starting from nothing. Nobody ever done anything like this before. So yeah, I believe that they can do what they claim they can do. I, I, take their past performances as proof for argument. And I said, to get back to the tooth fairy, I may not have to even reserve judgment on that because I always got a quarter under my pillow. So I'm inclined to believe there really was a tooth fairy and I'm inclined to believe Martin's gonna hit their milestones. Anyway, project got canceled. I, I think most of the committee actually voted to continue it, but I'm, I'm fuzzy on that point. It wasn't by a huge majority if they did. I think it was canceled because Jack needed money, or to put it another way, he may have been promised some funding money to pursue some things he was interested in by Craig and had to come from somewhere. And since the autonomous land vehicle didn't have a military service to stand up and beat on the table and say, we're depending on that, like the Navy would have or the Air Force would have at that time, uh, it, I think it was easy to cancel. In our interview, Clint points out that the technology developed from the autonomous land vehicle tests didn't go away. A new DARPA program began in 1990, and overall interest in autonomous vehicles grew in 1991 with the Gulf War. So what, what can I conclude? Uh, I can conclude that, that we demonstrated a lot of really cool stuff. Demonstrated the feasibility of autonomous mobility. We established a community that would carry on the uh, carry on the research. So Martin continued and continues to this day. You all certainly continue. A few other places are still doing work as well. And last, I have to say that collaboration between the integrator and the tech base uh, could be made to work, but it took a couple of years before everybody got comfortable with it. Clint relays a sentiment that Chuck Thorpe expressed. Chuck, Chuck points out an interesting thing, that, that when you look at what we did, and then you look what's going on today, you kind of shrug and say, well, boy, we're beating that today. I mean, look at look at Chris Ermson's company, Aurora. Look at... Uh, Neuro. What Chuck was saying is it's sort of not fair to compare the vehicle with what's going on today at places like Aurora and, and Neuro and lots of other places, but rather compare it with expectations at the time and what was out there at the time. So we, we started out in a world where, as I mentioned earlier, there were no cell phones, there's no GPS, no laptop computers, and computers kind of took up a room. And 
The only predecessor we had had that operated outside, admittedly under very carefully controlled conditions, was Hans Moravec Stanford Cart, and that operated uh, speeds that would make a tortoise look like a sprinter. That was what technology let you do at that time. So that was our heritage, and we suddenly said, gee, we're going to go, you know, a hundred times faster than that to start with. And a lot of people thought, you just can't do it. And we did it. I'll take a lot of pleasure in the fact that we proved another bunch of naysayers wrong. So that's kind of the end of the story. Thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. Next time on the podcast, we'll close out the series by looking at the 1980s from the CMU perspective, which saw the development of robotics, the Andrew system, and more. See you next time. Pathways is a production of the Oral History Program at Carnegie Mellon University. This episode was written and edited by Catherine and Dave, and Dave made all the sounds. All the oral histories are available within the university archives, housed in the Carnegie Mellon University libraries. 